The book of Revelation is an image that is given to us through God's word to show us a picture of what is to come from God's perspective in our future. And I know that it puts such a negative spin to it, this idea of the end of existence or the end of the world. And, and for us, I guess, if you think about it, it seems so morbid and it seems so negative, this idea to talk about the end of the world. But in one sense, it's like saying the end of coronavirus. It's actually something that we should be looking forward to, Right? Like the day that they come out with the vaccine and go, look, you get the vaccine, you'll never get it again. We never worry about this ever again. That's not a day that we're all like, oh, it's the end of Corona era and whatever. No, we're going to be cheering that day. And that's what the book of Revelation is meant to show us, is that actually the end of the world is not necessarily the worst thing for humanity. Sometimes we forget the world we live in right now. We don't live in a fairy tale. We're not, we're not living in a world where every morning we all wake up with smiles. Everything is great. Everything is awesome. You know, Lego movie kind of. You know, we're not living that. You know, for, the, for, for a lot of us, we're living in pain. We're living in illness. We're living in suffering. You know, that might be physical suffering. It might be relationship break, uh, breakdown. You know, um, we just found out that one of our guys, his aunt passed away. She, you know, she battled cancer for a few years and then, and then she finally lost her battle. That's the world we're living in. You know, if every day was great, then you'd go, okay, I don't want this to end. I don't want my life to end. I don't want this world to end because everything is awesome. But the reality is it's not. And so when God shows us through the book of Revelation what the end is going to look like, we shouldn't, you know, we, we shouldn't sort of hide away from that thinking, man, I don't understand this and, and it seems kind of freaky. And, but actually, we should embrace that. And that's what we've been trying to do over the last few months. See, every other book in the Bible is primarily concerned with the history and the present of where we are. But the book of Revelation stands alone in its primary emphasis of being the future. And because of that, it's actually really difficult. Because we're trying to understand concepts of something that has actually not happened yet. Like when we read history, you know, we're going to celebrate Christmas, right? And so when we, when we celebrate Christmas, we're studying something that has been documented over and over again. And so in a sense, it's kind of a finite limitation of understanding but with revelation and the end of the world it's kind of infinite and there's a lot of unknowns but what we've said is this right from the beginning just because it's hard and just because it's a bit abstract does not mean that we should stay away from it and just because things don't make sense it doesn't mean that they're not true See, we elevate this idea of understanding to be the most important thing. If I understand it, then I have achieved the pinnacle. But that's man's flawed view of knowledge. Can I tell you, knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge is not the highest role or purpose of our lives. Our, our, our lives, it's not for the sake of understanding everything. You know why? Because we can't. 
The reality is what you and I will ever proceed to understand in our lifetime, you know, you know the idea of the tip of the iceberg? This is not even the tip of the iceberg. It's the snowflake on the tip of the iceberg. I don't even understand myself. And I'm the one that knows myself the best, supposedly. I've been married for 14 years. I have no idea about women, about marriage. I have four children, five coming up. Steve, you must be the most wise father. No, I'm just reckless. You know, like, you know, it's not like that, right? And even when I die, is it the fact that I understand everything, therefore I am? No, it's not. This idea of inflating our egos and our identities because of the understanding is wrong. And that's same with Scripture. See, for some of us, our goal is to understand Scripture. But can I tell you, God did not give us His Word for us to understand it from a knowledge perspective. But God gave it to us so that we can interact with Him personally. See, in my marriage, Mel tells me things, right? Things that she likes, things that she doesn't like. And it's not for me to then look it up and go, David Austin Roses. Where did David Austin Roses come from? Why is there David Austin Roses in Australia? Why are they the most expensive roses and why does my wife like them, right? She's not telling me that because... She wants me to learn about flowers. She's telling me that because she wants some. Simple. She wants it in relationship. And that's what God's word is given to us. Can I tell you, even if you understand every single concept in the Bible, that's not what God intended. Plus, you can't. That's impossible. That's like climbing Mount Everest on your hands. It's impossible. But that's not the goal of God. The goal of God is not knowledge. The goal of God is relationship. So when God gives us the book of Revelation, it's not because he wants us to primarily understand what it's going to look like, but really it's for us to trust God because God understands what's coming. He knows exactly what is going to happen at the end of the world. And what we say is these are the facts. Tonight, we're going to cover Revelation 19 to 21. I told you, this is what happens when I don't preach for one week, right? It's the double energy stuff coming, right? We're going to go 19, verse, chapter 19 to chapter 21. It's long, but there's eight things in here that we're going to look at. Now, this is the concept that we want to look at today as we look at these verses, right? There are things that are written in the Bible. Uh, there are things that are written in the book of Revelation that will happen 100% whether you understand it or not. Why? Because it's the Bible. This is how we read the Bible. Because once you start to question the reliability of Scripture, once you start to question the authority of Scripture, every domino will start to fall. Because if you start saying, I believe in everything up to Revelation, but I don't know if I believe in Revelation. No, no, that's, you can't partially believe in God's word. You can't partially question God's word. It's either 100% or nothing. Now, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not real, because it is real. 
And these things that Scripture is going to tell us that is going to happen at the end of the world will definitely occur. But within these things, some are clearer than others. There are some things that you go, yep, tick. This is 100% going to happen. I have a good idea how it's going to happen. And then there are things you're like, hmm, I don't really know how that's going to happen. But is it going to happen? Yes, it is. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this passage and we're going to look at eight things that are definitely going to happen at the end of the world. Okay, these things are definitely going to happen at the end of the world. How do I know this? Because it's in Scripture, right? But I'm also going to show you that there are certain things I have no idea how it's going to happen. And there are many scholars that have been arguing over some of these things about the how and the when, and I'm going to show you that difference. Okay, so we're going to be reading some chunks of Scripture, so keep up. It's going to be on the screen. Let's start. Okay, eight things that definitely will happen. Number one, Jesus Christ will return. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And that is the direct reference to Jesus Christ himself. So the first thing that you have to understand, at the end of the world, number one, Jesus Christ will return. And it's not that he's just going to return. And it's nice that we're celebrating this around Christmas because the last time Jesus came, he came as a baby in a manger. But Scripture is telling us that when Jesus returns, he is not going to come as a baby in a manger, but he is going to come as a warrior ready to fight. Now, once again, in that passage, there's so much symbolism that we can't go into that's going to give us more depth. But we're just going to leave it at that because what you need to understand is this. Jesus Christ will return. Okay? That is the fact. That's, That's number one. Number two. Jesus will destroy the followers of Satan. Okay? Revelation 19, 19 to 21. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. What a picture, right? So we see this rider on the horse is going to go head to head with the beast and the kings of the earth and they lose. And they are destroyed and they are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Friends, Jesus will not only return, but when he returns, he will destroy those that have submitted themselves to Satan. 
Okay, this image of Jesus, of this meek and kind image is kind of getting broken, right? Because when Jesus comes back, he's going to smash people. That's my language, right? That's the fact. Number three, okay, there will be a thousand years of peace. Revelation 21 to 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to him, uh, over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's confusing. And I would say, okay, this is the fact. Number one, Jesus Christ will return. Number two, he will destroy the followers of Satan. And the third fact is this, that there will be a thousand years of peace. Now, is this a real thousand years? Is this a, a, a metaphorical thousand years? Leave it up to you. Right? Satan will be bound for a thousand years, and during that time, we will see the first resurrection. Right? I'm just telling you what Scripture told me. These men and women who had died because of their faith in Jesus, they will come back to life and reign with Christ during this thousand years. Now, this will happen. That will happen because it's written in Scripture. But when will this happen? When is the thousand years? Right? Are we in the thousand years now? Will Jesus come and then a thousand years go? And this is actually one of the most common arguments or disagreements about the future around this is when is the thousand years? And a lot of people ask, Steve, what's your position? Are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you postmillennial? When do you think the thousand years? And I'm going to completely be honest, I don't know. I wish I knew, and I wish I knew better, but I'm going to honestly tell you, I don't know. I have ideas, but hand on heart, I don't know. And I don't know if it's the most important thing for us to work out the timing of the return of Christ, more so the reality that he will return. All I know is that there's a thousand-year period of peace on earth before the final battle. That's the fact. When? Who knows? Okay? So, Jesus will return. Jesus will destroy the, the followers of the enemy. There will be a thousand years of peace. Number four, there will be a final battle. Revelation 27 to uh, eight. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to, the, to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle in number they are like 
the sand on the seashore. This is important for us. This is important for us to know because sometimes we forget that there will be an end to this battle, this battle between good and evil, the battle between God and Satan. Sometimes we just think, oh, it's just going to go on and on and on. But Scripture tells us, no, there is a final battle. There will be a final showdown, which then leads us to point number five, Satan will lose. Revelation 29 to 10, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God, dis- God will destroy Satan. God will destroy devil. And the scriptures tell us that Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where he will be tormented day and night. Now, what does this look like? I'm not sure, but this is what we call hell. And what's interesting is is that we think that Satan is the ruler of hell, but actually scripture tells us that Satan will be thrown into this hell and actually it will be hell for Satan. So even in where we think that Satan is residing, you know, we think Satan's having a party torturing other people. Actually, at the end of the world, at the end of time, Satan himself will be in his own hell. And this is a key point. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And what's important is that will go on for eternity. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. Haven't been there, don't want to. Right? But that's what scripture tells us Satan will lose. Satan will lose. Number six, every man and woman will be judged. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in these books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was also thrown into the lake of fire. scary stuff. This is biblical reality. Every person dead and alive will need to stand before the judge and receive judgment. What's interesting is as I was reading this, and it was a really interesting fact, this is not trial. Okay? This is not court in the sense that this is not when every human must stand before God and plead their life case and plead their defense. It's not that. It's past that. This is not when you go and defend your life before God and try to convince God that you are a Christian and that you, you live for Him. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. This is pure judgment. You stand there. If your name is in the book of life, you get to live. And if it's not there, you get thrown into hell. Now, I know, I know some of this language is really harsh. And I know, you know some churches don't really like talking about this. But for me, I'm just telling you what Scripture tells. Key verse, verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Now, how does this work, right? Let me give you some questions that I've been throwing years, right? What happens to unborn babies? Do they go to hell? Are their names in the, the book of life? What about those people who are in the Amazon who have never even heard English, let alone the gospel, and they die? Do they then go to hell? My answer to that is very simple. I don't know. I don't know why people come and ask me all these really hard questions, right? I don't know, right? I'm so quick to tell you that I don't know. You know, you have a good-looking pastor, but not a very smart pastor, okay? That's just, let's just leave it at that, okay? Okay? Thank you to gastro. I lost like four kgs, right? I love gastro. <laughs> Not during that time, but after. I don't know some of what happens after death except what scripture tells us. But all I know is that scripture tells us that if your name is not in the book of life, then you will not live forever in heaven with God. That's the biblical fact. Number seven, creation will be redeemed. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed. That is a beautiful passage. A new heaven and a new earth. I love this passage. It's one of the things that when I first went to Bible college, one of the first things that I learned, this idea of heaven. What's heaven? And we're not going to do too much on this, but, but we have this idea of heaven as, you know, the gates, you know, of the, the, the pearly, the, what is it, the pearly white gates. You know, like, you know, you got St. Peter at the door going, what's your name? Show me your ID. Are you from the northern beaches? Jokes, jokes. Too, too close. Pastor James, we love you. Hang in there, buddy. <laughs> right? You know, we, we think that heaven is like, you know, the most common view, right? You die. And then you go ding and you get on an escalator and you're like and you just sort of make your way up to heaven, right? And then earth down there and you look down and you see earth and you're like, oh, that evil place. But actually what scripture tells us is that at the end of the world, it's not that we're going to go to heaven, but scripture tells us that heaven is going to come to earth. A new heaven and a new earth. This is the way that God is telling us that actually God is going to redeem his creation of what he first created, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning there was God. God created the heaven and the earth, right? Right. He's going to redeem that. And, and he says, for those who put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this is what awaits you. This is what is going to await you. Heaven will come to earth, the earth that God created, and it will be heaven because under the definition of heaven, heaven is just where God dwells. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. If you go definition of what hell is, hell is the, the, the absence of God. That's what hell is. 
Hell is anywhere God is not. Heaven is anywhere God dwells. And so at the end of the world, right? At the end of the world, there will be no more death. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. There will be no pain. This is what heaven will look like, but it's not up there. Because God is going to redeem the world that he created. I had lecturers in Bible college that took it even further, and they think that heaven on earth is going to look like pretty much the earth that we live on. That Sydney will exist, America will exist, you know, you know, all these nations, they'll still exist. And it'll just be the fact that God's presence and God will return through his son Jesus. And I thought, that's interesting. Now, I don't know where I sit on that, but some people think that far. But how that's going to work, what it's going to look like, hmm, once again, I don't know. But creation will be redeemed. Heaven will come back on earth because God's presence. Think about it. The Garden of Eden was heaven because God dwelt in that place. He walked with Adam and Eve. That's where we were. And that's where God's going to go back to. Finally, number eight, some will be saved and some will be condemned. Revelation 21, 6 to 8, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Amen. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The Bible tells us that some will inherit eternal life. Some of us, in this world, we will live eternity with that phrase that God will be our God and that we will be his children. But for others, they will not. For some of us, the broken relationship between God and man will be restored. But for some of us, it will remain forever. Physical death is the first death, but spiritual death, the one that never ends, is the second death. Now, I'm not telling you this to scare you. I'm just telling you this because that's what the Bible says. Friends, these are the facts. As I said, there's a lot in that passage. All right, there's a lot you can sit on. There's a lot you can mull on. And depending on really where you sit with God, depending on your relationship with God, whether you're a believer of God or not, Scripture tells us that your eternity is at stake here, that your eternal destination is going to be different, could be different. And, And these are the facts of Scripture. So as I was studying this, and this was a few weeks ago, Right, As I, I try to do every week, after we study Scripture, we go back and we have to ask the question, well, what does it mean for us? So uh, within this passage, there are so many places to land, right? But tonight I want to conclude with this question. Right? And I really want you to think about this. 
The question is this. Everything that I've said tonight, what I say to you is biblical truth. The question is, do you believe this to be truth? Do you believe this to be truth? Right? We've, we've read through a lot of stuff. We've read through some pretty big consequences on, on which, you know, whichever side of the fence we sit on. But, but can I tell you, all of that, all is determined by whether you believe it to be true or not. Heaven and hell, God and Satan, angels and demons, good and evil. Yeah, the scripture talks about it. But the question I want to ask tonight is, do you believe it? Is this truth to you? Because if you don't believe this to be fact, right? If you don't believe this to be truth, then everything that I've talked about tonight and all the consequences and all the decisions that are made, right? There's absolutely no bearing on your life. Because if you don't believe in heaven and hell, if you don't believe in God and Satan, if you don't believe in all of this, then nothing will change in your life. And really, nothing should change in your life. Why would your life change based on something that you don't believe in, right? If in your heart of hearts, you're hearing me and you're hearing scripture and you're going, you know what, I don't know if I really believe this or some of you are like, this is a lot of crap. Then life just goes on. And that's to be expected. However, if you believe this to be true, regardless of how well you understand it or not, how well you understand when or how these things will happen or not, if you believe that this is the truth, then it should change your life. It should change your life. The way we live, the way we act, the way we speak, the way we relate to each other, and most importantly, the way we relate to God. If you believe that Scripture is truth, then everything changes. Everything must change. Now, if, you, if your life's the same, if, if you're like, you know what, like, yep, yeah, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, but you look at your life and you take a moment to think about your life, the way that you live your life, the values that you have in your life, if you, if, if you go, wait a minute, nothing's changed in my life, then humbly I would tell you and lovingly I would tell you that you probably don't believe in this stuff. Not in your heart anyway. You might think you believe it, but in your heart of hearts, it has, you don't because it doesn't affect you. The way you view pain and suffering, friends, the way you view pain and suffering in this world changes whether you believe in heaven and hell. You know? If you don't believe that there's life after this life, then you believe that this life is it. That's, that's pretty much what you're saying. 
and you live and die for your comfort and pleasure and everything on this life. You, you will literally invest everything into this life if you don't believe that there's anything after. Isn't that truth? But if you believe, if you believe, even an ounce of faith, if you believe that actually this life is a small temporary blop, but we've got the rest of eternity, like Scripture says, that you're not going to invest into this life, you're going to invest into the next. See, it doesn't matter what the Scripture describes it as, because it's always going to come back to the question of whether you believe it or not. You know, so many times we, we get caught up on, on, on the how does this work? This doesn't make sense. I don't understand this. And we get distracted by that. But I think the question is really simple. Is this fact to you? Is this fact to you? Do you believe it? Do, do you believe this to be real? Because if it is, it will have a huge impact on your life. It has to. Right? You think about the biggest decisions that you have to make in your life. Right? You know, some of them are like career. Right? What you choose to do in your life, that's a pretty big decision. Can I tell you a, a decision bigger than that? Uh, it's one to have kids right? That's a pretty big decision to bring another human being into this world, right? I'm a pro. I'm really good at it, right? Right? You know, that, that's a big decision, right? Like, I, I, I tell you, it's so funny, right? People that we haven't seen in like a year because of corona, right? They see us and the first thing they do is they congratulate us. They go, do we heard? Heard what? Your wife's pregnant again. It's like, yes, Congratulations. Thanks. You know, that's a big decision. You know, I, I can't live my life as if I didn't have kids. I go, yeah, my wife's pregnant. Yeah, I'm just going to go play golf again. You know, I'm just going to live my life as if I have no children. No, you, 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 I will go to jail. But you know what's a bigger decision than having kids? Getting married. It's like saying, I'm there I'm committing to you my life. I'm covenanting with you, human being. I want to become one with you. And then I go home and I live as if nothing changed in my life. That's just wrong. You don't get married and nothing changes in your life. Can I tell you, for those that are thinking about getting married, when you get married, it's such a big decision, everything changes in your life for good and bad but there's a decision that is even greater than marriage and that's whether to believe and follow God or not because every decision you make right now kids marriage career finances whatever you choose to do with your life you know what when you die that's the end of that consequence but Scripture tells us that where you sit with God and whether your name is in the book of life or not, that's not just a, uh, I think it's just a little bit of an important decision. No, that is the most important decision in your life. 
And the grace of God is that he gives us a scripture, scriptural truth. And he presents to us these, these truths, these facts to us, and he gives us this life for us to try to not work out what it says, but to work out whether we believe it or not. And he gives you and I the chance, the choice to make with God. But can I tell you, when you make that choice, things change in your life. The way you spend your money changes. The way you value people changes. It must change. It's too big of a decision. Comes down to faith. Comes down to what you believe and what you don't believe. Can I tell you, I believe all of that is absolutely true. I believe Scripture is absolutely true. I believe every word of Scripture is absolutely true. Does that mean I understand it all? No. Does that mean I can read it in the original languages of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and be able to translate them in those languages? No, I can barely speak English. You know? I struggle. Trust me. While we've been doing this series in Revelation, I've been struggling. There are so many concepts in here. I'll read it and go, yeah, that's good. I don't know what it says, but that's pretty good. You know? Every week, I'm like, okay, don't talk about that because I don't know what that means. You know, I joke with you guys and say, look, if you have theological questions about this book, go talk to Pastor Man. Not a joke. That's why we hire other associate pastors. Pastor May, she's at camp right now. Thanks. The question is not, do I understand it? And the question is not, can I explain it to you? The question is, do I believe it to be true? And I do. Bottom of my heart, I do. I believe Scripture to be true as much as I believe that this roof will not fall on our heads right now. That this stage will not fall. That this microphone actually works. That that camera is on and that Afshin is listening. I believe it to be true. Hand on heart. But what about you? Do you believe there is a God? Or do you believe that there is a concept of a God, a concept of a being, a higher thinking or whatever they want to call it. Do you believe that you're sinful? Or do you believe that people can actually be good? Do you believe in heaven and hell? And that the only way to heaven, the only way to God the Father is through Jesus the Son? Or is that just... Some nice religious idea. Friends, what is it that you believe to be true? Because whatever you believe to be true will be the governing rule of your life. And I pray tonight, I pray tonight that you would see that faith over rights understanding 
you will never understand your way to heaven or understand your way to God. We never will because we're creation and God is creator. But faith, to believe that even though we don't understand, even through the little that we do, that the idea of Jesus' return would not be some kind of figment of our imagination, but would be the true and living hope that we have today. Because if that is the truth that you believe, then the way you translate that into your life will completely change you. Friends, so simple tonight. What is it? that you believe to be true. Let's pray.